Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's lovely to be with you. Uh, if you are a visitor here tonight, can I give you a particularly warm welcome? Uh, it's so strange in these days that we can't give you our normal welcome. So I hope you feel relaxed and at ease among us. And as Alex said, tonight we continue our studies in 1 Samuel. The Bible is full of different types of literature. And in literary terms, 1 and 2 Samuel are the closest we get to something like Shakespeare. It's a brilliantly written drama that gives us real insight into the human condition. Unlike judges or kings, the story told in Samuel takes place over quite a short period of time. And above all, like all dramas, its power to grip our imaginations can only be felt if we take a bit of time to meet the characters and get to know them. So allow me a couple of minutes to introduce, them, introduce you to the four main characters in the book. At its heart, this drama is a contrast between two kings, King Saul and King David. I don't know about you, but when I first meet Saul, I actually feel quite sorry for him. Uh, in fact, it might seem that Samuel is a little bit hard on him. But as the story unfolds, we see that what we thought was just a minor flaw in his character is a massive structural fault that cracks his personality to its core a profound problem that means that Saul is unable to trust God. Religion for Saul could never be more than superstition and ritual, no matter how many ecstatic experiences he had. And in the end, we see him organize a seance with a witch in order to gain spiritual guidance. Saul's refusal to listen to and obey God's word triggers a descent into paranoia, jealousy, and murderous rage, and his story ends in suicide. And against that terrible story of dissent, the author sets the ascent of King David. David quietly infiltrates the court of Saul as a youth, and then he has to spend many years as an outlaw. He has no state-sanctioned authority at this stage. He couldn't just pull the levers of institutional power. But it's during this time that we see him take this ragbag bunch of misfits, a rabble to be honest, and forge them into a magnificent and noble set of warriors. We're seeing a real king at work. How did he do it, we might ask? And the author shows us King, king David's qualities in two lights. First, his ability to know and trust God, and second, his ability to inspire loyalty. Let me ask you, how will God rule this universe in the world to come? What will his king be like? The lesson of 1 Samuel is that God's king will be no control freak. He won't rule by pulling the levers of power. He will rule by understanding God and by inspiring loyalty. That is how Jesus Christ will rule the world to come. He will win our hearts and minds so that we want to obey him. Now, the odd thing with that summary of 1 Samuel is that it ignored the first eight chapters of the book because Saul doesn't actually come on stage until chapter 9. So that might make us scratch our heads a little and ask ourselves what the first eight chapters are about. Well, those chapters introduce us, introduce us to the other two main characters in the book. And the first one is called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it might seem strange to call a physical object a character, 
But the ark does play the role of a main character in, in both First and Second Samuel. If it was sitting here on the platform, you would see a golden box, a long rectangular box over a, a meter long, uh, with four rings welded onto its sides so that poles could be slotted through them. And the most dramatic aspect of the ark was its lid, a flat, solid gold top with two angel-like figures uh, on either end, standing with outstretched wings that met in the center. And the Ark of the Covenant was positioned in the holiest place uh, within the tabernacle, which in 1 Samuel was set up in a place called Shiloh. And the tabernacle was a sort of portable temple, uh, and it was the focal point, the center of Israel's worship. It was where the priests served. If you wanted to understand Israel's culture, its values, its goals, you would find them at the tabernacle. And in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, the ark is described as God's throne. And that title helps us to appreciate why the ark might be a main character in this drama about kingship. The ark represented the presence of God on this earth, and the nation, of course, held it in awe, treated it with unbelievable reverence because it represented the rule of God. Way back in the book of Exodus, when God was giving all the instructions uh, for the construction of the tabernacle, God explains how the Ark of the Covenant should be made. And he, after he's done that, he says this to Moses. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So this physical artifact represented the throne of God, okay? From where God executed his rule over his people. And its significance in the story will become even clearer next week when Ollie Neal expounds chapter 4. So we've thought about Saul and David and the ark. And the final member of the quartet, the final main character in the book, is Samuel the prophet. We learned last week about his godly mother Hannah and how she prayed for a son that she could dedicate to the service of God. And in our passage for tonight, we shall see Samuel develop from a young child into the first named prophet in Scripture since Moses. Now, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to chapter 2, please. Uh, the passage we have to consider tonight runs um, right from verse 12 of chapter 2, the whole way up to the first verse of chapter 4. So, we have most of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 to cover, but for now, we're just going to read from chapter 2, 12 to 19. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, or if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the man treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord 
a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each day, each year, when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And we'll stop there for now. I'm going to entitle uh, the the chapter 2, The Deepest Problem. And then we'll call chapter 3, God's Strategy, to solve that problem, okay? So let's revert to the question I raised at the start. If First and Second Samuel are all about Saul and David, what purpose do these early chapters serve? And I'm going to suggest that when it comes to the development of a healthy society or a healthy personality, there is something deeper than governance. Before we even start to worry about kings, we need to think about the deepest problem of all. And that is what we worship. When I worship something, I am saying that it has ultimate value. It is the regulating principle that orders my life. The object of my worship determines my goals, my values, and my priorities. And the same argument, of course, applies at the level of a society. If you want to, find, if you want to understand a culture, find out what it worships. The period of history prior to 1 Samuel is recorded in the book of Judges. Judges is probably the darkest book in the entire canon of Scripture. And it charts the descent of a society into moral chaos. And the author of Judges brings his book to a terrible climax when he recounts the very lowest point in Israel's history. And that climax is all about the corruption of the priesthood. I simply couldn't describe the horrific stories at the end of Judges in public. But they're intended to show the catastrophic consequences of a corrupt priesthood. And it's interesting, isn't it, that 1 Samuel starts where Judges left off. We begin this story not with Saul, but with a corrupt priesthood. Now, I'm conscious that some of you might be wondering why on earth you're listening to a story that seems so culturally remote. I promise you that once you get into the story, you will suddenly be gripped by its relevance to your own life. Because this ancient text, if nothing else, is brilliant drama. But give me one more minute to set it up, and then we'll speak, let it speak into our own lives. You'll have noticed in our reading that a contrast was drawn between the ghastly Hophni and Phineas, the sons of Eli, and the innocent purity of the boy Samuel, who by this stage is working in the tabernacle as an assistant. Now, our passage in chapter 2 is structured as three of those contrasts, okay? And we're going to look at the first two. And then we'll find the same structure in chapter 3. There are three pairs of conversations in that chapter as well. Anyway, I have exhausted your patience with all that preliminary work. So let's now dig in and allow this ancient story to speak directly into our lives. I've entitled the, the section we have already read, A Corrupt Priesthood. But that title forces us to ask, well, what should a good priest be doing? Now, that's no academic exercise. Because every true believer is a priest. When it comes to our priestly role, there are no gender distinctions. The Apostle Peter, writing to Christian men and women, tells them that they have been chosen by God and are precious to him. He says, we are a holy priesthood called to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was the priest's job to lead people into knowledge of God, to make people sense the reality of God, to show them the wonder, the glory, and the majesty of God. 
The priest's role was to bring to people a sense of the overwhelming holiness and moral beauty of God Almighty. In the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, the author says that the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. The priest, in that sense, was the guardian of the holy things of God. When a priest, priesthood was doing its job properly then, the nation would be led to worship the true and living God. He would become their ultimate value in life. His precepts would be the ordering principles on which their lives were based. But what happens to a society when the priesthood becomes corrupt? Well, that's the problem we find in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Over the summer months, Ollie Neal persuaded me to record a series of podcasts on church history. So I spent a few weeks buried in the weird and wonderful world of the Middle Ages, and then on into the Reformation and early modern history. And I have to say it was a pretty depressing exercise, even more so for the listeners. Now, if I had to pick one artifact that sums up all that went wrong in 2,000 years of church history, it would be the three-pronged fork in this chapter. Consider a sincere worshiper from the tribe, I don't know, of Asher, say, who makes a pilgrimage to Shiloh to worship at the tabernacle. Perhaps he wants to express gratitude or to atone for a sin he has committed. And he knows the ancient laws of the offerings well. The best portions had to be offered to God. The fatty meat had to be burned with fire as a form of incense. But just as our sincere worshipper is preparing his offering, an official from the office of Hophni and Phineas arrives with a big three-pronged fork. The device had been specially designed by them to capture as much meat as possible from the worshipper's pot. Bewildered, the worshipper protests that he is offering uh, his meat to God. But as we read, he is threatened with violence unless he cooperates. What we are witnessing here is the oldest con trick in the world, the abuse of religious power. Men who use their religious office to abuse power in pursuit of financial gain, greed and power. You can find the three-pronged fork in books about medieval popes. You can find it in the crystal cathedrals of charlatan TV evangelists like Creflo Dollar. And you can find little three-pronged forks in just about every church in history. I don't care if your church is a Gothic cathedral or a rusting mission hut. The temptation is always the same. The temptation to use the priestly duties of a believer to gain selfish advantage. In the world of Christian consumerism, everyone comes to church with their three-pronged fork. Some weeks they plunge it into the pot and nothing much comes up. Maybe tonight you'll feel that all you got was a small bit of gristle. I'm not scolding here, I'm setting up my main point. Tell me this, what did God get from your attendance at church today? What did he come away with? As a priest, one of your main jobs is to offer worship to God. God loves it when you see into his heart and appreciate him when he sees that you love the things that he loves. So at our breaking of bread service, we quietly build a meditation of praise in our hearts to God. And then we offer it to him with thanksgiving. But think what you're doing to the priesthood here 
if you turn up each week with a big three-pronged fork. I love the contrast that the author provides to Hophni and Phineas's greed and selfishness in verses 18 and 19. Because there we see the boy Samuel dressed in a pure white linen ephod, quietly going about his work in the background. Every year his mother would make a new garment for her son. And I'm sure every mum in the room can empathize with Hannah's feelings just now. I wonder how much Samuel has grown. Will this be big enough? She had sent her precious boy into a wicked world. And that linen ephod was a symbol of innocence and protection. And it symbolized the constant prayer that that good woman offered up for her son every day, praying that he wouldn't get contaminated, praying that he wouldn't be corrupted. That's a good prayer for a mother to make for her children, isn't it? To pray that innocence and purity will be maintained in a corrupting world. Let's read the second of our contrasting stories in verses 22 to 26. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. In the previous pairing of stories, we learned about a corrupted priesthood. Here we encounter a ruined witness. How did Hophni and Phinehas get away with all their greed and bullying? Why weren't the scoundrels fired? Well, their father Eli was the high priest, and he was a weak man who thought that blood was thicker than water. So we read of him wringing his hands and effectively asking his sons to rein their poor behavior in but they had already passed the point of a return, no return. They got to the point where repentance was impossible. And it is this section which reveals the real damage done by a corrupted priesthood. The stories of Eli's sons spread far and wide. They generated cynicism among the ordinary people. And we know from chapter 7 that many of them turned to pagan idolatries. But maybe we shouldn't be too quick to judge them. What sort of example had they been set I said earlier that if you wanted to understand the heart of Israel's culture, you should visit the tabernacle. Well, what would you have taken away from a visit? The point being raised here is a really sensitive one. I'm sure every Christian in this room knows at least one person who was turned off Christianity by the bad behavior of another Christian. Maybe they were mistreated by a bully in work who turned out to be an upstanding evangelical. Or perhaps, perhaps they were raised in a home run by religious hypocrites. And worst of all, they might have experienced abuse from a churchman. Now, we have to be really careful with the term abuse. In the cancel culture that abounds on social media, the term has been so diluted by misuse that it's now almost impossible to define. And that's going to be an important thing for churches to do in the years ahead. Otherwise, an elder who might find himself cancelled because of one grumpy comment, even if he begs for forgiveness afterwards. 
or a Bible teacher might be accused of spiritual abuse simply because he issues a biblical call to repent of sin. But I am using the term in its technical sense, and we all know that that is a wicked and terrible thing. Perhaps I'm talking to an unbeliever now, and you have been terribly hurt by Christians behaving badly in the past. Well, there's really only one useful thing I can say, and that is to point you to verse 26. The ruined reputation of the priesthood is contrasted with the entirely positive and growing reputation of the young Samuel. Now, the words used in that verse are very significant. Significant. The gospel writer Luke uses them to describe the Lord Jesus when he was a boy. It's interesting, you know, that Luke begins his gospel with a deficient priesthood. Zachariah wasn't corrupt, of course. He was actually a good man. But he had lapsed into agnosticism. He simply didn't believe that God would intervene in human history. But Luke contrasts the boy Jesus with a deficient religious system in the way that we find here in 1 Samuel. And I guess the application is obvious. Don't judge Christianity by looking at Christians. Judge Christianity by looking at Christ. So we've thought about a corrupt priesthood and a ruined reputation, and the final pairing could be entitled An Inevitable Conclusion. We're not going to take time to read it this evening uh, for the sake of time. So let me just summarize that this final section makes the point that the house of Eli is finished. The house is going to be brought down. At the moment, they might be enjoying vast quantities of food and money, but inevitably, they will end up begging for bread. It's interesting that the blame is placed firmly at Eli's feet. I think when we get to heaven, when we get to the final judgment, we'll be amazed at how often the people who bear the heaviest responsibility for terrible actions won't be the scoundrels who performed those actions, but the weak men who let them. There's a massive challenge in these verses for church elders. Eli should have disciplined Hophni and Phinehas, but he was too weak, too much of a coward to do anything. Church elders need courage. Let's now turn to chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter together. It's very famous. I'm sure you all uh, were, learned it, many of you learned it at Sunday school. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. 
Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken against his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall, be, shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Chapter 2 showed the deepest problem, the corrupt priesthood. And that was the deepest problem because it led an entire society into distorted worship and perverted values. And no governance, no matter how good it is, can fix that problem. It's interesting in that light to contrast how Saul and David treat the priesthood in the rest of the book. David relies heavily on the priests, perhaps most heavily on the successor to Eli's dynasty, the man known as Zadok the priest. But Saul, well, Saul slaughtered the priests. And that wicked action shows us what Saul thought about guarding the holy things of God. So in chapter 3, we are going to see God's strategy to solve this deep problem, the one we identified in chapter 2. It's not going to be enough to destroy Eli's house and then put David on the throne. I'm now going to suggest what I think is the main purpose of these early chapters, all of them. The bridge between a corrupt priest, priesthood and a messianic king is a prophet. It is Samuel the prophet who bridges us from the disastrous priesthood to the hope of David. And prophets have really only one job, and that is to deliver God's word to the people. It's common to see this chapter as a charming story of a, a young boy's religious awakening, but it is much, much more hard-nosed than that. We're seeing the formation of the first named prophet since Moses. Just as Moses used to stand in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and listen to God's voice come from between the seraphim, so we see Samuel do exactly the same thing. Allow me to make a quick aside for a moment. Samuel had, of course, been taught the Scriptures uh, from his mother's knees. He probably had an upbringing as a child that wasn't dissimilar to Timothy in the New Testament. Hannah was a godly woman, but it struck me recently that she begins a pattern that we see all through for Samuel. The pattern is of a spiritual woman bound in marriage to an unspiritual man. Hannah's husband, Elkanah, was a smug, conceited materialist. The spiritual woman we meet in chapter 4, you'll meet her next week, was married to the scoundrel Phineas. She's one of the few people to feel the sheer horror of the events described in that chapter. And then later on we meet Abigail, 
whose husband, according to scripture, was a moral fool. Now, these stories represent the heartache of a spiritual person who is bound to an unspiritual carnal believer. It's not an unequal yoke in the strict sense of that term, but it is a burden that some believers have to bear. And Hannah provides a great role model here because her suffering is transmuted into a life that had eternal value. She reminds us that even in that difficult pastoral situation that I have just raised, suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Anyway, that was a complete aside. It's interesting when we survey chapter three uh, that God's strategy uh, involves a quiet infiltration of an innocent boy into a corrupt system. That pattern is repeated when David joins Saul's court. And of course, we see it writ large as we watch the Lord Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple. In verses 1 to 5, we encounter the first of um, uh, three cycles in the story. Uh, Samuel, by this stage, perhaps a boy in his early teens, is lying down in the holy place. The lamp of witness was still burning, so it was probably just before dawn. Now, always remember the literary genius of the author of this book. This night scene will be contrasted with the ghastly night scene in chapter 28, when Saul comes by night to a seance where he tries to call up the spirit of a deceased Samuel. And at heart, the two stories are about the same thing. How does God speak? The answer, of course, is that God speaks through his prophets. Just as God spoke to Moses from in between the seraphim, so he now speaks to Samuel. And once the boy has gained the ability to recognize and understand God's word, then he must do the painful duty of every prophet, and that is to tell the truth, no matter how difficult. At first, Samuel does not recognize the voice of the Lord. One of the reasons we love this story is because it shows just how patient God is. It's actually quite funny. The eternal Logos waits patiently while this Judean farce of people running on and off stage goes on time and time again. How patient God is with us. But eventually, in the third cycle, uh, or, uh, or the second cycle, Eli realizes what's going on. I find verse 8, if you have the text in front of you, I find verse 8 one of the most poignant phrases in the whole Old Testament. Now, at first reading, you might wonder why. Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. Let me read that sentence to you again. Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. Surely if God was going to speak, he should have spoken to the high priest. But in that fateful moment, Eli experiences the pain of being passed by, of being set aside. Samuel had been his obedient assistant. They were genuinely fond of each other. Eli was like an adopted father to him. But now the roles get reversed. Eli has to wait while the Lord speaks directly to the boy. Now, Eli wasn't a bad man, but he became slothful and weak. He started to live for the things of this world. I'm sure there were times in his heart of hearts he wanted to do more for God, but he did enjoy those lovely steaks that... Hophni brought in on the end of his three-pronged fork. And so the desire retreated once more to the back of his mind. But this night, it was too late. He had been passed over. He wouldn't lose his place in heaven, of course, 
but he would have little reward. There was so much he could have done for the Lord and so little he had actually done. Brothers and sisters, so many of our sins are sins of omission rather than commission. Think of that quote from Calvin and Hobbes. There's never enough time to do all the nothing you want. Henry James once said, I think I don't regret a single excess of my responsive youth. I only regret in my chilled age certain occasions and possibilities I did not embrace. Jim Elliot said it best of all, when it comes time to die, make sure all you've got to do is die. So maybe this night when you get home and find a quiet place to reflect on your life, I'm talking particularly to those of you who are a bit older, talk these deep issues over with God. The story of your life doesn't have to be 1 Samuel 3 verse 8. It could be Jonah verse 3 verse 1, which says, and the word of the Lord came on to Jonah a second time. In verses 10 to 21, we read the final dialogue cycle in the chapter. But this one is no farce with the sound of running feet and confusion over identities. It is incredibly grown up. God tells Samuel what's going to happen to Eli's house. And in the morning, Eli forces Samuel to recount everything he had been told. I feel so sorry for Samuel at this point. Remember, he has had such a difficult and strange childhood. The mother he loved had asked him to bear the pain of separation. He must not have enjoyed the company of Hophni and Phinehas. But old Eli was like a father, the father that he never really had. And Samuel was the sort of son Eli had always wanted to have. Now in the morning light, Samuel has to stand before the old man and say things no boy should ever have to say to an older man. It was psychologically tough. But the Lord knew what he was doing. Because prophets need to be tough. They have to tell the truth even when it hurts. If you only want to dispense honeyed words, don't ever be an Old Testament prophet. I wonder how Eli reacted. Maybe there was just a, an awkward pat on the shoulder as the old man accepted his fate. And Samuel would have been left alone. But by the end of that strange night, Samuel had another companion because now he knew the Lord. In the quietness of the night, a young man could sit quietly in a flickering lamplight and look at the Ark of the Covenant. And within that little circle of light, the boy and his God could have fellowship together. Over time, they came to understand each other better, to know and to be known. For a short time, outside in the outer court, Hophni and Phinehas would continue their hypocritical reign. But their fate was sealed. God's strategy was now established. The prophet had been appointed. And so the next chapter begins with the words, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Did you notice that? Samuel's words were God's words. He had such integrity and insight that there were no spurious, empty words, no endless religious babble. Not one of his words fell to the ground. They were all taken by God the Holy Spirit and used as arrows flying unerringly to hit their mark. Samuel the prophet is our role model. If we are to rescue a culture that has been led astray, which has been taught to worship falsehoods, then we must walk the lonely pathway of the prophet. We are called to speak truth, and that won't make us popular. So the only antidote to the loneliness 
is the companionship of God himself. Our friendship circle might get very small. It might only be you and God within that little circle of light. But that will be enough. Earlier we sang that simple chorus, Within the Veil. I finish by quoting its words to you. And as you listen to them, perhaps we can put our three-pronged forks down for a moment and give something to God this day. Give him an offering from the heart. Within the veil I now would come into the holy place to look upon thy face. I see such beauty there. No other can compare. I worship thee, my Lord, within the veil. Alex will uh, explain our final hymn and then I will close in prayer.